You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. My name is Jessie, and I'm one of the leaders here. And we've just spent the last couple of weeks talking about parables, and specifically parables that are exclusive to the book of Luke. So part of that discussion has been how to read these parables and how that they are not meant to be moralistic stories that teach us how to live, but are instead stories about the capital K kingdom. They reveal to us how God intended for this world to work and how it will work again. These stories are meant to show us who God is. Today, we'll be looking at this parable that's usually entitled The Persistent Widow in Luke 18. And this parable has two main characters, like you just heard, the judge and the widow. And it's a through these characters that we get to see this, uh, this comparison in a how much better than is Jesus. But before we get any deeper into this parable, I actually want to start us off with a minute of silence this morning because I just want to acknowledge that getting out of the house on a Sunday morning is varying levels of chaos. Um, And I don't know what your week was like. Uh, Maybe it was the best week you've ever had in your whole life. Maybe there was some elements of chaos to your week. Um, But I just want to take a minute and just breathe and be silent in recognizing that we are here to remember who God is and that we are here to rest in that knowledge and that we get to do that together. So if you are afraid of a minute of silence, don't panic, it's only a minute, but I encourage you to just breathe deep. And if when I do silence, I think of the word abide in my head and I just say the word abide over and over again. So I'm going to pray over us as we say a minute, have a minute of silence. As I enter prayer now, I pause to be still, to breathe slowly, to re-center my scattered senses upon the presence of you. Thank you for who you are, God, and I just pray that all of our hearts and our minds are open to what you have to say to us today. Amen. So funny how a minute sometimes can feel like 15 minutes and sometimes it can feel like nothing at all. Time is weird. Anyway, through our study of the parables, we have learned that the parables are not standalone stories. They have to be read in the context of what comes before and also take into account what is happening around the parable itself. We also need to remember who the audience of the parable is. 
So this particular one in 18 starts with, and then he told them a parable, which is a very major clue that we need to pay attention to what comes before the parable in order to understand it. So if you open up your Bibles and just like look at chapter 17, I'm not going to go into it a lot, but you can read those headings and see that there's some pretty well-known and major events that happen in chapter 17. We know that it's halfway through the book of Luke towards the end and towards where Jesus is heading into Jerusalem to be crucified. He's getting less and less um, cryptic about the fact that he is about to die and rise again. <clears throat> this is the part of the book when Jesus is <sighs> revealing more to his, his people and his disciples who he is, and weirdly, they're still not getting it. So in this, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they ask him to increase their faith. And his response to them is that it's actually not about increasing your faith, because you can have faith the size of a mustard seed. That's a common thing for us to remember, right? And if you have so much as the faith of a mustard seed, you can cause a mulberry tree to grow in the sea, which doesn't normally occur, right? And then there's this passage where there are 10 lepers and Jesus heals all 10 of them. And one of them comes back and thanks Jesus and remembers who he is. And that one that comes back is a foreigner and a Samaritan, not one of God's people. So we get a little bit further in and in 17, Jesus is with the Pharisees and they straight up look at him and ask him, when will the kingdom of God come? And this is his response. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here he is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then he turns to the disciples and he gives them more information. He says to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. God's people knew that the whole Old Testament spoke about the coming of the Messiah. They knew he was coming to save them and that he would be of the line of David and that he would do great things. However, they continually missed him when he came because they were expecting his greatness to be something entirely different than what it was. They expected this warrior who would come in a flash of lightning and shiny army and defeat the earthly temporary nation that were oppressing God's earthly temporary nation. But Jesus is saying that the days of the Son of Man are with them right now, and they are missing it because they are missing him right in front of them. And then he reminds them of the stories of Noah a lot and Lot in this chapter 17 and how the destruction of both of these nations, they were carrying on with normal life, completely out of tune with the coming of God. 
But God, in both of these stories, saves the remnant of people who do remember him, who are not living life the way the world says to live it, but instead who are trusting and faithful to his path. And I want to take a moment to just remind you that God is not saying emulate Noah or Lot in any sense of the words. If you read those stories, like you might actually blush a little bit with how terrible some of the things they did. The point is not that they are the heroes of the story. The point is that Jesus is the hero of these stories. And I hope it provides some hope that you see the type of people God lets into his kingdom. His standards are embarrassingly low. Jesus is sharing these stories with his disciples, men he knows well for all their flaws and their doubts and confusion. And he says in just a few verses before, all it takes is a mustard seed because I am faithful to you when the amount of faith you have in me is this small. It's not because your faith is so great. It's because Jesus' mercy is. So leading up to this passage, we get to see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees where they're asking him about these huge obvious signs that they are supposed to expect from the coming Messiah. And Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, don't believe those big signs if they're pointed out because the Son of Man is here and he will illuminate everything and shatter the darkness. But first, he must suffer and die. And Jesus takes all these interactions in chapter 17 and uses this parable to illustrate his point. This week's title is, this week's parable is titled in most translations as the persistent widow. So I read through this passage over and over and over again in the last six weeks. And when I sat down to write it, I had this moment of, what does persistent actually mean? If you were at the women's retreat a couple of weeks ago, we were given this book called The Women of the Word, and we had a speaker come and talk to us. And she told us about this amazingly simple, handy little tool called a dictionary. <laughs> so I used it to look this up. And I, I'll tell you right up that this using a dictionary has actually revolutionized the way I read my Bible. So I'm going to pull out my English major right now and be fully nerdy for just a minute and pull up the definition of a couple of words. So two things. One, I'm using an 1828 translation of Noah's dictionary, Noah's Webster's dictionary, because I think that the language there is just a little archaic enough to shed some light on the Bible translations. Okay, so the first one I'm especially excited about because I get to be nerdy about plants and words. <laughs> Persistent in botany actually means continuing without withering. Just like let that sit with you for a minute. Continuing without withering. How beautiful is that image? It just conjures this beautiful picture of this plant that is so strong with deep roots. So the second definition of persistent is continuing in the prosecution of an undertaking, persevering, or continued pursuit. So this is generally more what I think of when I think of the word persistent. Someone who carries on doing something, usually despite the odds standing in their way. 
But when I look at this definition, it also makes me curious about the word prosecution because this is not typically how I think of the word prosecution being used. So then I had to look up the word prosecute. So one, to follow or pursue with a view to reach, execute or accomplish, to continue efforts already begun, either to begin and carry on or to continue what has begun. Two, or to seek to obtain by a legal process, or three, accuse of a crime. So persistent means to continue in an act that has begun and can also mean a legal proceeding, which is especially exciting because that is the setting of the parable. It's a legal proceeding. So <clears throat> side note, uh, it's important to note that the word persistent is not actually in the text anywhere. This is a title that was added by the church leaders when making the um, canon of scripture. So you need to be careful when looking at the titles, but also they put them there to give us generally a clue on what's coming. So just be aware of that. So then after looking up the word persistent, I wanted to look up the word widow, which felt like a little bit of an overkill to me because we all know what the word widow means, but it was not exactly what I expected it to be. According to my dictionary, a widow can be a noun or a verb because somebody can be widowed or can be a widow. So that was exciting. But also, <laughs> widow also means to be stripped of everything good, or in more modern definitions, to deprive of anything cherished or needed. So for example, a surprise attack widowed the army of its supplies. The word origin in Latin is widus, meaning bereft, or the Indo-European Indo word that I won't attempt to pronounce means empty. That's exciting, right? <laughs> We haven't even gotten into the parable, and now we have this little clue about it. And it's fascinating to know that these words that we use on a regular basis have more meaning and depth to them. And if nothing else, we have this whole nother layer to what the word widow means, and it definitely sheds some light onto the position of a widow in society, and especially ancient society. It literally means bereft empty and without anything good, i.e. husband in most situations. But that was a dangerous place for a woman to be without a husband. In that, those societies, they didn't have the protection and their place in society was, was very vulnerable. So remember that. So we've looked at the context, we've looked at some of the vocabulary, so let's look again at the passage. This passage has two characters, the widow who is crying out for justice against her adversary, and she has come to the judge to find that justice. This judge is a man described as someone who neither feared God nor respected man. Personally, not the sort of judge I would want in charge of any of my justice. He's clearly corrupt. And she's clearly desperate. Otherwise, she would go to someone else. She is coming to this judge, hoping for justice, not on his own merit and, or worthiness as an upholder of justice. He doesn't even respect man. 
but she continues coming to him and pleading her case before him. She persisted in her pursuit of justice. Eventually, she wore him down, and he said to himself in verse 4, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Not really the sort of thing you'd want to hear from the supposed upholder of justice. But this parable is handily unique in that Jesus tells his disciples its meaning and purpose right up front in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if we look at this parable through this lens, and in the context of everything he tells us in in chapter 17, and clearly the whole rest of the Bible, what do we see? Let's look at the judge first. I said at the beginning that this is a comparison parable. The human judge is supposed to be a stark contrast to the real capital J judge. Jesus, as a judge, does not need to be begged for justice. He is justice. And here's some good news for us. Because God cares about those who are bereft of empty and empty of anything good as part of his very nature. Widows and orphans are often used in the Bible as a symbol for the disenfranchised and the unprotected and the vulnerable. And God cares so much about their well-being that he set up strict security in his laws for these people. In Exodus 22, at the beginning of God creating his people, he says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. God is not just a God of justice. He is a God who listens. He listens to the voice of the powerless and the unimportant. And he doesn't just listen to their cries, he acts on their behalf. I think in our culture, we often sidestep talking about this God whose wrath will burn. But at the same time, this is the God we want. When you're the one being oppressed, this is the God that you're looking for. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt completely powerless and persecuted. I have and I've watched people that I love go through that. When everything feels so unfair and you're in so much pain that you don't even have the words to voice how you're feeling and your heart just cries out. And God tells us that he listens to the groanings of our hearts when we don't even have those words. And in this parable, he told the people it was so that they would not lose heart. During the women's retreat, we were looking at Psalm 139. And this verse, verse 11, has been echoing in my head the last couple of weeks. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, 
Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. When you are trapped in this place of the widow, powerless, bereft, devoid of anything good, you do not need to be left begging for justice. You do not have a selfish judge. You have a good judge who is in there, in that place of darkness with you, whose darkness is not darkness, is light, who cares so deeply for the vulnerable of the world that he wrote protection for them in the very fabric of the laws of, of the world. And he shows throughout his story how deeply he cares. Jesus as a judge doesn't need to be begged to remember you. As he showed us with Lot and Noah, the second we have even that tiny mustard seed worth of faith, he turns around and he saves us. He does the work, not us. He is actually the persistent one in this relationship. Jesus as a judge knows us better than we know ourselves, and therefore he can give us what we need and not what we want. In Romans 8, 27 through 28, it says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is a better judge than this human one in the parable because Jesus doesn't just cave and get us what we want when we ask a million times and then he doesn't want to be bothered anymore, so he gives in. He gives us what we need because it's good and because it's the will of the Father. We are not left in this place trying to guess the whims of a judge and needing to play our cards right to make sure that he's in a good mood or in ask just the right way or need to nag repeatedly. This parable is about a judge who does the wrong, the right thing because he doesn't want to be bothered anymore, not because he cares about justice. How much better is the judge who cares about our hearts, our desires, and who works together for our good and the good of the kingdom. If he cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, how much better does he care for us? This human corrupt judge does not follow the laws God set in place to protect justice, and yet he still gives this woman justice. How much better is a judge who is perfect, patient, and incorruptible? In this parable, Jesus is the better judge. So if there's two characters, that must make me the widow, right? I'll be honest, this passage has always been a little bit hard for me to process. As a flawed, impatient human being and one who has raised four toddlers, I have always been a little incredulous that God really wants me to be that persistent. I imagine a toddler with what my mom used to call the gimmies, like gimme, 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 gimme. When my child asks for something a hundred times, it's actually not good parenting to finally give it to him the hundred and first time. So what idea or image of persistent does God mean for us to take away from this? I think what we can take away is the widow, from the widow is the fact that she continually shows up 
and trusts that the judge will give her justice. She is persistent in her pleas to this human judge, and he grants her the justice she desires. And how much better is God to this human judge? He is infinitely more patient than this judge, and he loves us and wants us to bring our prayers to him, unlike the judge. And even if we do have the gimmies with Jesus, he is still patient and listens to us. But when we read this parable through the lens of Jesus as the hero, and the point of all the stories we are left with is really good news. The point of this story is not to leave you feeling like you need to do these things to be better at prayer or to pray more to increase your faith. The point is not how much faith you have or how well you pray. Your job is simply to abide in the knowledge that Jesus does have enough faith. All you need is a mustard-sized seed worth. In Romans 8, the before what we read before, 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus is the persistent widow, (laughs) the one who helps us in our weakness and can hear our groanings when the pain is too deep for us. Jesus is your advocate and your judge. The only persistence you need is to have the one that clings desperately to the idea that you are not the widow left bereft and devoid of all things good, because Jesus is with you. He is the very definition of goodness. And that, that knowledge right there, the knowing deep in your soul that you can't be devoid of all things good, because you are abiding with the creator, the king, the advocate, the justice, the all-powerful judge. That is the mustard-sized seed worth of faith and is all you need to not lose heart. Like the widow in this story, all you need to do is show up because the good judge will grant you your justice. This type of persistence is more of just a steadfast remembrance of who God is and what he does for us, a deep abiding in the spirit, like that botanical definition of persistence. It's continuing without withering because Jesus is your strength and your roots. The point of this parable is not for you to be inspired to pray more or to pray harder or to be more persistent in your faith. The point of this parable is for you to take heart and know that all you bring to this table is a tiny mustard seed worth of faith and you show up because Jesus is the persistent one who remains true to us in our time of widowness. Jesus is the one who brings the justice we need. Jesus is the good judge and the hero of this story and of all stories. Does this mean we just get to sit back and let God do all the work? No. Jesus said this parable is so that we ought always to pray and to not lose heart. We still have some responsibility in our relationship with Jesus. We are are like the widow in that we do have to be persistent in our showing up. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, 
In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. God wants to be with us. It's not about doing all the things. It's about showing up and being with him. He wants our true, authentic selves to show up and be with him, and he listens to us. He can handle our prayers of lament and joy, complaining, sadness, anger. Whatever it is you bring to him, he listens with an open ear. Our persistence is in showing up in our widowness and trusting that God is good enough and big enough to handle it. And even, like it says in Romans, when all we have to offer are the groanings of our hearts, he listens and he acts on your behalf. So as you come to the table this morning, take heart, because our good, good judge stepped off that high podium and joined us down in the courtroom. And instead of pronouncing punishment on everybody, he took on that punishment. This act was the answer to persistent sin, persistent earth groaning, persistent failure on our behalves. But God's persistent faithfulness is greater than our persistent failure. Our lack of persistence is met constantly with Jesus's persistence. So when you take that bread and drink that juice this morning, remember the pain that you do not have to suffer because he did it gladly suffered on your behalf. When you worship this morning, remember who it is you are worshiping. Show up, sing those words in praise to the judge who comes not to punish, but to save. And finally, give joyfully today because we were so joyfully and generously given to first. I'm going to close us today by praying the last part of Zephaniah over us. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. <clears throat>